Welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast on the Questionable Endeavor Network, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at Raw Attitude Pod. And of course, do not forget you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. Since the last episode, we have had listeners on six continents still waiting on Antarctica, and I want to give a particular shout-out to our listeners in the city of San Pedro Sula in Honduras, which, up until recently, earned the distinction of being the murder capital of the world with more homicides per capita than any other city on the planet. So thanks a lot for listening to the podcast during these tough times, although I suppose it is statistically possible that our listeners there could actually be murderers, and if that's the case, uh, please stop doing that. In addition to listening, you can also help us out greatly by writing us a five-star review on iTunes so that more people can find us. In fact, an Australian gentleman named Lee Cunningham did just that when episode 17 went out, and here is what it says. Listen to this podcast because a handsome man commanded it, and in fairness, he's pretty handsome. Also, Henry promised to read the next five-star review on air, and I'm oh so lonely, smiley face. Seriously, good show, and makes me want to do my own after seeing how well a one-man show can go. Great listen. Thank you very much for the kind words, Lee. I'm really glad you enjoyed the show, and for you Raw Attitude podcast fans out there, Lee has since created his own podcast called Raw is Nitro, where he analyzes episodes of those two shows head-to-head and picks a winner. Definitely be sure to check that out. I listened to the first episode and quite enjoyed it, and he actually gave the Raw Attitude podcast a shout-out at the end of the show. Very cool. Also, for the record, what Lee mentioned in his review is correct. If you write a five-star review, I will definitely read it on the show. So if you like this podcast, what have you got to lose? Might as well do it, and you'll get free publicity for yourself on the best wrestling podcast on the internet, as voted by me. But on a related note, a quick word for anyone who wants me to read their review on the show, or anyone who does a podcast in general. Because this podcast is based out of America, iTunes will only show me the reviews which are written in America. To find Lee's review, I had to specifically switch my iTunes location from America to Australia, and that was how I was able to see it. So basically, if you're not from America and you write a five-star review for the Raw Attitude podcast, just be sure to send me a tweet or an email and let me know that you did it so I can find it that way. I want to give you credit, and I don't want your reviews to slip through the cracks. And hey, iTunes, why wouldn't you just show all the reviews worldwide instead of making us look up each country individually? Dick move, guys. Dick move. Now, on to an important matter at hand. If you listened to episode 17, you heard me ramble at length about a chair which walked away on its own in the background of a segment on Raw, and you probably thought I was insane. Well, I may still be insane, but thankfully, one of our fans on Twitter posted a video of the chair moving by itself. Full credit to our friend Eduardo Lausus for showing the world that for one night, an inanimate object had a mind of its own. You can check out the video on our Twitter, at RawAttitudePod, and give Eduardo a follow as well while you're at it, at LaFleur2Sweet, that's L-A-F-L-E-U-R, the number 2, S-W-E-E-T. He's a good guy, and it was awesome that he backed me up 
by posting that video. I also wanted to give a quick shout out to the guest hosts of the last episode, Andy, Adam, and Jason from the Questionable Endeavor Network. Once again, if you're not listening to their podcasts, you definitely should be. As a reminder, you can catch Andy on the Shadow Vein podcast, which showcases tales of horror and suspense, and also on Tuning Japanese, that's T-O-O-N-I-N-G as in cartoon, where he and two other guys discuss Japanese anime. As a quick side note, I know literally nothing about anime, but I still enjoy the podcast immensely. And of course, you can catch Adam and Jason on the Rundown Wrestling Podcast every week as they discuss all the goings-on in the WWE. And don't forget that in addition to listening, you can also watch them every Thursday on Google Plus as they stream live, which allows you to interact with them directly as the podcast is going on. If you follow the Rundown on Facebook, they will post the Google Plus link when they go live on Thursday nights, so you can just click right on over to it. Nice and easy. Welcome to Worcester. Dollar 25, please. Hey, how you doing, Tollbooth Willie? Good, thanks for asking, Pop. Ah, oh, that's great. You know, considering you're a fucking idiot. And finally, before we head back in time to the Attitude Era this week, I want to give a couple quick thoughts on the SmackDown Draft episode, which I recently attended, along with my very patient girlfriend in Worcester, Massachusetts. Although, on a related note, a very famous Attitude Era moment happens in Worcester at the beginning of 1999 and provides possibly the loudest extended pop in wrestling history, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. As for the SmackDown Draft episode, overall I would say it was an enjoyable show to attend with a pretty good crowd throughout, except for the dumbasses who were chanting CM Punk during the main event. I like the suspense of seeing which superstar would be going to which show, although for my money I think that Raw clearly came out ahead, which I suppose makes sense considering the fact that they were awarded more picks. The biggest surprise for me was Finn Balor going number 5 overall to Raw. I figured he would be drafted relatively high, but getting chosen before John Cena, Brock Lesnar, Roman Reigns, and The New Day really shows how much of a future they think he has with the company. The biggest drop for my money has to be Kevin Owens, who wasn't chosen until Raw took him with the 18th overall pick, which just seems crazy. I mean, I like Chris Jericho and Randy Orton just fine, but their best years are behind them, and I'd rather have Owens going forward. Also, doesn't it make both sets of GMs and COOs look kind of dumb for having drafted 60 total people? But none of them thought to choose Bailey, who is clearly the top woman on NXT. Summer Rae, Alicia Fox, and Eva Marie get chosen, but not Bailey. Well, I suppose this is why it's pointless to split hairs when analyzing a wrestling draft. Also, I should note that I'm recording this episode before Sunday's Battleground pay-per-view, where I'm assuming Bailey will be revealed as Sasha Banks' mystery partner, which I suppose could be the reason why they kept her out of the draft, but still, it just kind of looks silly to not have her chosen at all. The main event WWF Championship match between Dean Ambrose and Seth Rollins was solid, although I did not think it was nearly as good as the match they had on Raw the previous night. However, I was pleasantly surprised that the match ended with a clean, decisive pinfall, with SmackDown top dog Dean Ambrose coming out on top in order to put over the B-Show as a legitimate competition for Raw. Will the fans buy that SmackDown Live is now on par with the company's flagship show? I suppose time will tell. Personally, looking at SmackDown's draft picks, their roster is not going to be enough to make me want to tune in every week, but I'll be eager to check the ratings for both shows to see if they're actually close to each other. In fact, this past week, SmackDown actually scored a higher rating than Raw for the first time in 11 years, but I'm pretty skeptical as to whether that will continue. And speaking of checking the ratings each week, I feel like that's a good segue to kick us into this week's episode of the Raw Attitude Podcast, so let's get down to business. It is Monday, April 20th, 1998, 420, man, and we are 
pre-taped six days in advance from the town of Uniondale, New York, located on Long Island. And on that note, we open with a recap of last week's proceedings, where the advertised Steve Austin vs. Vince McMahon main event WWF title match was interrupted by Long Island native Dude Love, who proceeded to attack Austin and put him in the mandible claw as the show went off the air. Last week, Raw finally defeated Nitro in the ratings after an 84-week losing streak, so let's find out if the WWF can build on that momentum and make it two in a row. We kick into the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Not too many notable signs tonight, except for one in particular which says, and I quote, Bischoff rapes chickens. For the record, I posted a picture of that sign on our Twitter, at RawAttitudePod, and it received more likes and retweets than anything else I have ever posted. So clearly, if you want the Twitterverse to blow up your page, the obvious answer is that you must make some sort of reference to bestiality. For 20 bucks, I'll call the guy a chicken fucker. License and registration? Chicken fucker? And speaking of chicken fuckers, we open with Kevin Kelly on location at the cemetery where Kane previously desecrated the gravestones of his parents. Kevin says Kane and Paul Bearer were spotted at the cemetery earlier and they will break into the broadcast once The Undertaker shows up, which will presumably be during a tag team match since Taker interrupted several of those last week. Back in the arena, we see a lava lamp, some inflatable chairs, and a cutout of a psychedelic 60s school bus which is covering the entrance. As you might expect... That means it's time for Dude Love, and he is here to debut his new talk show, The Love Shack. However, he barely has time to introduce the segment before Vince McMahon angrily storms out from backstage. Vince says he had a chance to humiliate Stone Cold Steve Austin last week, but Dude Love ruined it, so he is going to fine him $5,000, or roughly $4,950 more than it cost him to create the set for The Love Shack. He tells Foley to never interfere in his business again, and then he heads right backstage. Foley then continues by saying that people have been asking him, why dude, why, all week, and he is asking that as well. Why would his former tag team partner Steve Austin ambush him last week? Dude concludes that the answer has to be the chicks. He then amusingly says that when they were the tag team champions, they were followed around by an entire caravan of pussy. Cats. However, Dude was the one getting all the young, lusty women, while Stone Cold was attracting the attention of housewives with hair on their upper lips. So, basically, the Italian women. Dude Love has now been named the number one contender for Austin's title this Sunday at Unforgiven, but he will be willing to remove himself from the match if Austin comes out later tonight and grovels at his feet. He then finishes by saying that he always knew he could beat Stone Cold, and last week he proved just how easy it would be. So there you have it, folks. The first ever pay-per-view WWF title defense for Steve Austin will be a match against Dude Love. If you predicted that one 18 years ago, well, you're just a liar. We then segue directly into our first match of the evening, the Nation of Domination head through the crowd, accompanied by a crappy new remix of the classic Nation theme song. They're each carrying their own weapons because Kama is about to face Farouk in a Long Island street fight. However, before the match can begin, the referees order The Rock, D'Lo, and Mark Henry to head to the top of the ramp, and we also see that Ken Shamrock and Steve Blackman are backstage, being told by WWF officials that they must stay there so they cannot interfere either. That means it will be Farouk versus Kama one-on-one. I will note that Kama is wearing a shirt which says FTW, and if you think he's just stealing that from Taz, funny enough, Taz will not debut his FTW championship in ECW until three weeks from now, on May 14th, 1998, at an ECW show called 
It Ain't Seinfeld, which was given that name because it was held on the night when the Seinfeld finale aired. Who thought up professional wrestling? I mean, if, you, if there was no professional wrestling, do you think you could come up with this idea? I go, wait a minute, I have a tremendous idea. Why don't we have huge guys in bathing suits pretend to fight? <laughs> Millions of people will come out to see this. Also noteworthy is the fact that for the first time, Jim Ross refers to Kama as, quote, the godfather of the Nation of Domination, which may end up coming into play somewhere down the line. As for the match, this was an all-right brawl, with Kama surprisingly dominating most of it. The highlight of the match was Kama taking a hammer and swinging it into Farouk's already injured ribs, and that certainly can't feel good. Later on, Kama went for another hammer shot, but Farouk instead took off his boot and walloped Kama in the face with it, then hit him with a spine buster, which Michael Cole incorrectly referred to as the Dominator, and Farouk scored the three count after a six-minute match. You know it's a pre-taped episode of Raw when two guys who never wrestle a match longer than two minutes end up going for three times that length. Backstage, DX are watching highlights of themselves peeing on the Disciples of Apocalypse's motorcycles from a few weeks ago, but Billy Gunn says there is one problem. They were all peeing on the bikes, but Triple H wasn't. Hunter says he'll pull his dick out right now if that's what Billy Gunn wants to see. Yes, seriously, that is how the conversation goes. But Billy says he bets Triple H doesn't have the guts to pull it out in front of the entire world right there in the ring. Road Dog even goes one step further, and Triple Dog dares Hunter to give the audience a golden shower, which then results in one of the greatest lines in the history of Jim Ross's distinguished broadcasting career. Helmsley is going to expose himself here tonight and urinate on the crowd. Sure enough, when we come back from commercial, Degeneration X are heading to ringside with Hunter wearing a black trench coat. A quick note for you Attitude Era completists out there. On the initial Raw broadcast before DX made their entrance, there was a pre-taped vignette which featured country band Sawyer Brown hanging out with Jeff Jarrett and Tennessee Lee in preparation for their concert this Sunday at Unforgiven. I went ahead and found that footage on the interwebs, but don't worry, you didn't really miss anything. Frankly, there just wasn't enough Tennessee Lee to make it worth watching. But anyway, once again, X-Pac asks the Long Island crowd to make some noise if they're down with DX, so he is apparently still not grasping the concept that the group is supposed to be heels, even though the very segment he is currently involved in is being hyped up as Triple H literally pissing on the audience. The crowd chants for LOD since the Outlaws will be facing them on Sunday, so Triple H says they should be chanting Skanky instead, since that is the nickname of LOD's manager, Sonny. Oi. We're then told that the stipulation for this Sunday's European title match at Unforgiven between Triple H and Owen Hart will be that China is suspended in the air inside of a cage so she can't escape. Yes, on Sunday, China will be very high, just like Vince Russo was when he came up with this idea. And for the record, I actually wrote that joke before Russo posted a video this past week of himself smoking weed so he could endure the current Monday Night Raw product. Really, I swear to God, I did. But now it's time for what everyone wants to see, a grown man whipping out his Johnson and pissing everywhere. The rest of DX crowds around Hunter, and sure enough, we then see a spray of liquid shoot out into the crowd. However, as you might expect, it's not actually Hunter pissing into the audience, but rather he is squirting a super soaker full of water. For those of you who wanted to see people get covered in urine, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I'm sure a quick Google search will enable you to find what you need. They are then interrupted by Owen Hart, LOD2000, and Sonny, who does not look very amused by what Hunter said a little while ago. Hawk says DX may talk the talk, but right now, they're going to walk the walk. However, before they can make it to the ring, Commissioner Slaughter emerges from backstage and gets in their way. Slaughter then officially sanctions a six-man tag match, 
for later tonight. To which I say, why not now? Both teams are right there, and they were literally just about to fight each other. Why bother waiting? Also, when LOD and Owen start walking backstage, Sonny stays behind on the ramp and intently stares down Triple H as though his comments might have been getting a bit too personal. Remember that, kids. If you're mean to women for no reason, you can't get very far in life. The farthest you can get is the heir apparent to the WWE fortune. Oops. After a commercial break, we go back to Kevin Kelly at the cemetery, who says he can confirm that The Undertaker is just a few minutes away from arriving. My question is, who exactly gave him that information? I can't picture undead zombie Undertaker ringing up Kevin Kelly on his 1998 car phone to let him know that he'll be arriving shortly. Although if he did, I'm sure he would dial 10321, a sponsor of tonight's Raw. The next match is Dan the Beast Severn, accompanied by Jim Cornette and a crap load of title belts, versus Headbanger Mosh, accompanied by Headbanger Thrasher. For the record, the Headbangers were a tag team consisting of two metalheads who painted their faces. I'm putting that out there now because I'm assuming the WWE is going to edit out all references to headbanging now that there's a huge class-action concussion lawsuit against them, just covering my bases. Severn basically spends the entire match hitting Mosh with nothing but various forms of suplexes, then following it up by slapping him in the back of the head to humiliate him. Definitely not the best showing for Severn here, and it seemed to kill the crowd, even though Thrasher at one point was able to knock Cornette down with a terrible-looking punch. Eventually, Severn hit Mosh with a power slam and then slapped an iron bar on him, resulting in the tap-out victory in less than three minutes. So far, Severn has not looked very impressive during his early run in the WWF, but please don't tell him I said that. We then go back to the cemetery, where Kevin Kelly says the Undertaker arrived, he heard a loud scream, and then Taker left. He continues his report, but then, out of nowhere, Taker shows up and chokes him, demanding to know where Kane and Paul Bearer are. This gets interrupted by a commercial, and when we come back, Kevin says he has no idea what the Undertaker saw, and he can only now speculate the Taker is headed back to the arena. So wait, does that mean that the Undertaker's parents are buried somewhere on Long Island? I don't think we were ever told that was where Taker and Kane were from, but I guess now we know. Frankly, if that's the case, I'm pretty surprised that neither of them have hideous New York Vince Russo accents, but oh well. Next up, the artist formerly known as Goldust, accompanied by Luna Vachon versus Bradshaw. Before the match, Goldust appears to legitimately kick the arm of a fan who was taunting him on his way down the aisle, so go check that out because apparently no one gave a shit about that sort of thing in 1998. Luna grabs a mic and says this Sunday at Unforgiven, she is going to strip Sable of her soul, her mind, and her clothes, to which the fans say, we only care about that last part. Rather dull match here, which ended when Bradshaw was going to set up Goldust for his lariat clothesline, but before he could do so, Club Kamikaze entered the ring and attacked him, resulting in a disqualification because we need at least 18 of those on every episode of Raw. Funaki and Teo held Bradshaw down, and Dick Togu then hit him with a top-rope senton bomb, which actually looked pretty painful. Club Kamikaze then ran off through the crowd, with this being their first attack on a WWF superstar other than Taka Michinoku. All in all, I wouldn't recommend you check out this segment for any other reason other than the fact that three of the participants, Goldust, JBL, and Funaki, are somehow still employed with the WWE 18 years later. Pretty mind-boggling. And now we begin the second hour of the show with WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin storming to the ring and receiving a huge pop, as you might expect. He angrily grabs a microphone from a stagehand and says to cut his music. He recaps last week's events where Dude Love interrupted his match against Vince McMahon, but Austin has now come up with an interesting theory. Dude Love and Vince were in on it together all along. 
He asks the crowd to give him a hell yeah if they agree that it was a conspiracy, and of course they oblige. Austin then says by the end of the night, he promises he will get his hands on both Vince and Dude Love, and that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. He then needlessly bullies a stagehand, a cameraman, and Tony Chimmel before heading backstage. Also, apropos of nothing, I find it rather humorous to hear Austin say the phrase, Dude Love. It just sounds weird coming from him. The next match is the new Midnight Express, accompanied by Jim Cornette and Dan Severn, who has now changed into a full business suit, versus Terry Funk and Two Cold Scorpio, whose on-screen label says TCS Funk for some reason, which would seem to indicate that the full name of his character is now Two Cold Scorpio Funk, and that's just awful. This was actually a very enjoyable seven-minute match that ended when Bob Holly went to superplex Scorpio off the top rope, but Scorpio blocked it and knocked him to the canvas, then hit Bombastic Bob with the 450 splash to score the three-count and give the new Midnight Express their first loss as a tag team. Tony Chimmel then does indeed announce Scorpio as TCS Funk, so apparently they're actually running with that. Good lord. Immediately after the match ended, Dan Severn entered the ring, hit Scorpio with a suplex, yup, he's making a habit of that, and then he put him in an armbar until Terry Funk chased him off with a chair. Dan Severn may be a legitimate UFC badass, but not even he will stick around when a crazy 53-year-old man is wielding a weapon. Backstage, we see a hearse arriving at the arena, with the commentators playing up the fact that it must be The Undertaker, so of course, in wrestling logic, that means that it obviously cannot be The Undertaker. We then get a pre-taped vignette of Val Venus in the shower with two women. He says the ladies better get their rest now, because he will be arriving in the WWF soon. But here's my question. Why would Val even bother coming to the WWF in the first place? I mean, it seems like he has a pretty good gig going with his day job. I feel like he should just stick it out there. Pun intended. Up next, Michael Cole introduces Sable, who heads to the ring wearing a blue evening gown. Cole recaps Luna's comments from earlier, where she said she would humiliate Sable by tearing off all of her clothes, but Sable says she could not care less if Luna were to strip her naked. Those comments seem a bit odd since that means that Sable would not care if she lost the match to her arch-rival, but hey, to each her own. Sable then heads right backstage as JR tells us we should order Unforgiven if we've been feeling let down by recent wrestling pay-per-views, which is clearly a reference to WCW's universally maligned Spring Stampede, which aired the night before. More on that later. We then go backstage once again where we see a man open the back of the hearse, and then we see that Paul Bearer and Kane are actually the ones who are inside. Bearer is wearing a white shirt which looks suspiciously dirty, so you can probably imagine what he's been up to. Hint, he was not building sandcastles. We then cut to Michael Cole elsewhere backstage, who asks Vince McMahon if there is any truth to Steve Austin's allegations that he and Dude Love are working together to conspire against him. Vince amusingly suggests that Austin has been watching too many Oliver Stone movies, and if Stone Cold wants to come after him tonight, he'll be ready for him, just like he was ready for him last week. Our next match is the six-man tag team match, WWF European Champion Triple H and WWF Tag Team Champions The New Age Outlaws, accompanied by X-Pac and China, versus Owen Hart and LOD2000, accompanied by Sonny. As DX make their way to the ring, Jim Ross hypes up Unforgiven by saying that it will be in Greensboro, North Carolina, and he says, quote, We know that Greensboro is Ric Flair country, so it seems like JR is really trying to tease a Flair appearance now that it has become common knowledge that he's being sued by Eric Bischoff. Spoiler alert, Ric Flair does not appear at Unforgiven, but I suppose you can't fault JR for trying to generate some interest in a second-tier pay-per-view. 
This was another good match which got quite a bit of TV time, nine minutes to be exact, with a commercial break in between, so probably about 11 and a half in total. The match ended when LOD hit the road dog with the Doomsday device, but Hawk got distracted because China picked up Sunny and was walking toward the entrance ramp with her. In the ensuing confusion, X-Pac snuck into the ring and hit Animal with a chair, followed by Billy Gunn delivering a sloppy-looking pile driver, resulting in the three-count for Degeneration X. From a historical standpoint, I think this may be the only time where China and Sonny have any sort of physical altercation, but both of them later go on to get physical in hem some special videos that they make, but that's a whole other story. We then go backstage again where we see Kane and Paul Bearer pushing a coffin to the ring, which is covered in dirt and maggots. Needless to say, it ain't for a casket match. When we come back from commercial, two coffins are placed on the stage, and Bearer says that The Undertaker never got to attend his parents' funeral, so he dug them up and brought them here. Oh, that's, that's awfully nice of him. The lights then go out, and we see The Undertaker make his way through the crowd and start walking toward them. I mean, really, Taker, this is the one time when you don't enter from the top of the ramp, and it happens to be when Kane and Paul Bearer are right at the top of the ramp? Poor strategy, dude. Anyway, Kane pours gasoline on one of the coffins, and Bearer tells Taker not to come any closer, or he will light it on fire. Of course, Bearer ends up lighting it anyway, so Taker charges toward him, but Kane grabs the Undertaker and... choke slams him through the other coffin. Okay, that was actually pretty cool. We even get a zoom in on the maggots and bones inside the casket, because this segment just wasn't gross enough already. We go to commercial, and when we come back, Michael Cole is backstage informing us that Kane and Paul Bearer have left the arena. The remains of The Undertaker's parents have been transported to a more secure area, and Taker is accompanying them to that location. Cole tells us that he will never forget the look on The Undertaker's face, and I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing it was similar to the look he gave Vince McMahon when Vince told him he would be facing Shane at WrestleMania 32. And speaking of Vince McMahon, he strolls to the commentary table just in time for tonight's main event, Dude Love versus the once-defeated Steve Blackman and his glow-in-the-dark kendo sticks. Vince says being back at the table feels like home to him, but unfortunately, he doesn't bust out his classic commentary catchphrase. Now there, clever maneuver on the part of Shawn Michaels. High-risk maneuver is the name of the game when it comes to the 1-2-3 kid. The kid going to the other side, same maneuver, yeah! The kid from, yes! Look at that maneuver! get the idea. Jim Ross suggests that Vince may only be out at ringside because he has ulterior motives, and in fact, JR may be onto something because the Dude Love Blackman match ends when Dude puts Blackman in an abdominal stretch, and then the bell suddenly rings out of nowhere without Blackman having ever given up. Blackman and referee Tim White both appear confused, as White never actually called for the bell, but Dude celebrates anyway, having given the lethal weapon his second ever loss in the WWF. An angry Blackman then goes to confront timekeeper Mark Eaton and ask why the bell rang as Vince yells at Blackman to keep his cool. Amusingly, one dumbass fan then gets a bit too excited when he realizes the camera is on him and loudly puts himself over. Jesus, man, act like you've been there before. Come on. Anyway, Blackman then flips the timekeeper onto his back as Vince goes over to check on him. During the confusion, Stone Cold Steve Austin runs out from backstage, clotheslines Dude Love, throws Vince down to the floor, and starts putting the boots to him. Dude Love comes over to help out Vince, so Austin turns his attention to Foley instead. As they brawl, Vince rolls into the ring and removes his jacket, seemingly ready for a fight. 
Austin goes after him, but Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe get in the way, and each of them eats a stunner for their troubles as Vince heads backstage. Foley and Austin brawl some more, and we go off the air with Austin running backstage to go after Vince. Are Dude Love and Vince McMahon conspiring together? I guess you'll just have to find out this Sunday at Unforgiven. But for now, let's go to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they cluckin'. Cause WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap Last week, Raw finally ended Nitro's 84-week ratings-winning streak thanks to a heavily hyped Austin McMahon main event. This week, however, Raw was pre-taped six days in advance, leaving ample time for wrestling fans to look up the results on the internet before the show aired on Monday while Nitro was, of course, live as usual. Not only that, but Nitro was airing one day after their Spring Stampede pay-per-view, which featured a couple noteworthy title changes. Specifically, the main event of that pay-per-view featured 45-year-old Randy Savage defeating Sting to win the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Other noteworthy matches included Goldberg continuing his undefeated streak by beating Perry Saturn, Hollywood Hogan and Kevin Nash defeating Roddy Piper and The Giant, and Raven defeating Diamond Dallas Page in a Ravens Rules match to win DDP's United States Championship and end his nearly four-month title reign. The show scored 275,000 pay-per-view buys, which was down from the 415 that the previous month's Uncensored put up. However, compared to last year's Spring Stampede 1997, they actually increased by 65,000 buys, as that event only had 210,000. So with Raw pre-taped and Nitro coming off a pay-per-view, what was the final ratings tally this week? Well, Raw scored a very respectable 4.4 rating but Nitro put up an even better 5.1. That's right, folks. Nitro is back on top of the ratings, for one week anyway, and here is the show they put on to steal the momentum back from the WWF. Conan defeated Chris Adams. The Barbarian defeated Wayne Bloom. Chris Jericho defeated Juventud Guerrera to retain his Cruiserweight Championship, and yes, once again, I have to play The Rock's clip where he mocked Jericho's choice of WCW opponents. You think you impressed The Rock? You think you impressed The Rock? Why? Because a couple of months ago, you were down south beating some jabroni named Hooventude? Goldberg defeated Raven in a Ravens Rules match to win the WCW United States Championship, his first ever title victory in professional wrestling. And yes, that's right, Raven won the title at the pay-per-view the night before, but WCW has now hot-shotted the belt onto Goldberg, one day later, although I suppose you really can't blame them for that considering how heavily they've been building him up, and the pop he gets is actually pretty massive. In fact, I'll play it for you right now.
man was over. You gotta give him that. Laparka defeated Ultimo Dragon. Chris Benoit defeated Kurt Hennig by DQ. The match only got two and a half minutes, so hopefully they get more time to wrestle at a later date, because that would probably be a pretty killer match. No pun intended. Hammer and Saturn went to a double countout. Buff Bagwell and Scott Steiner defeated the public enemy. Booker T defeated Psychosis to retain his World Television Championship. Lex Luger defeated Brian Adams. And in your main event, no disqualification match, Hollywood Hulk Hogan defeated Macho Man Randy Savage in 15 minutes to win the WCW World Heavyweight Championship for the fourth time. Yes, just like Raven the night before, the Macho Man also won a title, only to drop it on Nitro one night later. Clearly, WCW was really trying to rebound from their ratings loss last week because they gave away Hogan vs. Savage on free TV and a world title change to boot, so kudos to them for going all out. Not only that, but they also had one other trick up their sleeve at the end of this match. That's right, we go off the air with a Bret Hart heel turn. This is now four months after he debuted in WCW, and he has had a whopping four televised matches, despite the fact that he had built up a ton of goodwill with the WCW fans after being screwed over by Vince McMahon. And now they're banking on a nonsensical heel turn by Bret to get the fans to stick around instead of channel surfing over to Raw in the coming weeks, despite the fact that they've barely used Bret at all up to this point, and therefore not really given the fans much incentive to care about him. Will this strategy work? Well, do you remember Bret Hart's 1998 heel run in WCW where he sorta kinda sided with the NWO? I rest my case. The Raw Synopsis This was a surprisingly wrestling-heavy episode of Raw, with four matches getting at least four and a half minutes of TV time. I know that doesn't seem all that impressive, but if you go back and look at the match times on Raw lately, four and a half minutes is a long time for this period. Ultimately, however, this was a pretty skippable show, which is unexpected given the fact that they had just ended WCW's ratings winning streak last week, so I had expected they would go all out in order to maintain that momentum. Instead, we got a mediocre go-home show before Unforgiven, and, when you compare it to the episode of Nitro which aired on the same night, I think it's definitely safe to say that the right show was victorious in the ratings on this particular night. Overall, I think we can call this placeholder episode a thumbs-in-the-middle, trending downwards. On the next episode, however, I will be covering the results of Unforgiven, as well as the events which transpired the night after, and you certainly don't want to miss that, because the next episode of Raw features one of the most famous moments in WWE history. I'm hoping I'll have a guest host for that episode, but we'll see if our schedules end up aligning. Either way, it's going to be a very noteworthy episode of Raw, so you'll definitely have to tune in for that. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes, just like Mr. Lee Cunningham did, because that helps us find an even wider audience. 
And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I leave you now with a clip of the most shocking pick which occurred at the SmackDown Draft episode, and I will catch you next time. It's an honor, Stephanie, and with our first pick this evening, Rob- We would like to pick Chris Benoit. Oh, oh.